Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, please, and ask him to help us as we look at it for a few minutes together. Father, this morning we come again before you, uh, confessing our need and asking that you would help us. Father, we hear these verses, these words of the Lord Jesus, and some of us undoubtedly have heard these words before and perhaps even heard a sermon on this verse, these verses. Some of us undoubtedly have read these words before and thought they were significant. Yet, God, we ask this morning that these words would go deep into our spiritual bones and heart. We ask this morning that we would understand our true problem, the nature of our true issue, that it comes from inside of us, that our hearts are desperately wicked, that our hearts are sinful, that our hearts are unclean. And, Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to be honest enough with ourselves to admit what's true of us. We ask also that you would help us this morning to trust and rest in Jesus who offers freely of his own blood to cleanse us and to make us pure again so that we can enter into your presence. Help us to see this morning our need for new hearts, God, our need for cleansing, for purity from the inside out. Lord, we ask that you would do these things by the power of your Holy Spirit because in and of ourselves we are unable to admit these things about ourselves. We are unable to run to Jesus for help and rescue. These things go in one ear and out the other when we are operating alone and in our own power. So don't leave us alone this morning. Father, come by the Spirit and help us to understand and believe 
the things that Jesus has for us here. We pray it in his name. Amen. The most recent Pixar movie is called Inside Out. I took my three kids to see it uh, the first week it was open because I think the Pixar movies are great. And this is, I think, one of the best of all of the Pixar movies. It's about a young girl who's around 12 years old who moves to a new city with her mom and with her dad. And it's about her experience in moving to a new city. But the thing that makes the movie so interesting, as I'm sure most of you know, is the movie focuses on the personification of her emotional life, of her inner life. There's four emotions that are focused on, that are personified, the emotions of joy and fear and anger and, no, not fear, joy, disgust, anger, and sadness. Joy, disgust, anger, and sadness all have their cartoon looks, and the movie is really quite funny, and it's also extremely clever in the way it portrays um, the way this girl's reacting to a change in her external circumstances. And one of the brilliant things about Inside Out is how it focuses on the importance of what's going on inside. What's going on inside of our hearts? What's going on internally? And how it shows internal thoughts, internal matters, what's going on on the inside oftentimes has major impact on the way we view the outside world, on the way we act externally. It's a great movie. I'd encourage you to watch it with your kids and actually talk with them about some of what it communicates that's true afterwards. One of the things that it clearly resonates with when it comes to scripture is that idea that what really matters if people are going to change, what really matters if people are going to experience the new life, the pure life that Jesus Christ offers offers to us through his work on the cross, one of the things that must change is the inside of us. That's, in a sense, exactly what Jesus is getting at here in these verses that we read this morning. As we move into Mark 7, we see ominous signs on the horizon. Jesus' ministry is continuing to draw interest, but it's also continuing to stir up dissent among the leaders, among the religious establishment. We see in verse 1 that Pharisees come down from Jerusalem, we assume, to sort of test Jesus out. The tension in his ministry is being heightened. And here Jesus deliberately fuels the fire. He deliberately raises the bar of his incisive and intentional critiques of the religion of the Pharisees, the religion that dominated ancient Israel, the religion that Jesus in many ways came to speak against. And so the Pharisees make accusations against Jesus here, and Jesus answers an accusation of the Pharisees with really with quite a bit of bite, with quite a bit of gusto and force. And then he uses their accusation and his answer as an opportunity to teach about where our true problem lies and about where our true solution can be found. Really, the main idea of this story this morning can be summarized like this. The source of our uncleanliness is inside, not outside of us. That's what Jesus wants to communicate to each of us this morning. The source of our uncleanliness is inside and not outside of us. So let's break this story down into two parts. First, I want to show you outside-in cleansing, the way of the Pharisees, and then inside-out cleansing, the way of Jesus. Okay? So let's look first at this idea of outside-in cleansing, which we see particularly in verses 1 through 13. This disagreement begins when the Pharisees come and accuse Jesus and his disciples of not washing their hands before they eat. You see that there in verses 2 and 3. Now, what you need to know, especially if you're new to the Bible, 
is that this has nothing to do with hygiene. Jesus would have been all for, and I'm sure his disciples would have been all for, being clean when you go to a meal, like making sure there's no germs, etc. What it's really about, rather than hygiene, is ceremonial cleanliness or ritual purity. You see, the Pharisees are really concerned about Jesus' disciples not washing their hands in this particular ritualistic ceremonial way because in the Old Testament, God's people, the people of Israel, were given a number of laws, ceremonial laws, that if we read through them now in our day seem quite strange. But these ceremonial laws, there were a whole host of them, were intended to be visual symbols of an internal reality. They were intended to point us to the true nature of our own heart condition, that we are impure, that we are unclean, and that we need to be set apart. We need to become holy. We need to become pure if we're going to enter into the presence of a holy God. The Old Testament ceremonial idea is sort of like a, like a pop-up picture book that you might read to your children. You know, I've got a three-year-old, and when I want to teach him about dinosaurs, we'll get a dinosaur book from the library and open the book up. And I'm sure you've seen these books before. A T-Rex will sort of pop up the way they've designed the paper so that the T-Rex pops up and its mouth opens. And so that Ben can look at the T-Rex and look at its teeth and say, a T-Rex was big. (laughs) A T-Rex had sharp teeth. A T-Rex is something I would want to run away from very quickly. If I met a T-Rex in a dark alley, things would not go well for me. Those are the sort of things that Ben is going to learn when he sees the pop-up picture book. That's what the Old Testament cleansing laws, these purity laws, in many ways were about. They were illustrations intending to teach us about what it's like to enter into the presence of a God who is holy. That might seem weird to you, but if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that according to these cleanliness laws, if if you touch a dead animal or a dead human being, or if you had an infectious skin disease, or if you come into contact with mildew, or if you had any kind of bodily discharge, or if you ate meat from an animal designated as unclean, you were considered ritually impure. You were stained. You were defiled. You were unclean. Now, that seems weird, but it's really not all that strange when you think, again, about the purpose of these laws. They were merely visual aids that helped people recognize that they were spiritually and morally impure before God and that they could not enter into God's presence in that state. They were signs pointing to a deeper problem, a heart problem that precludes our entering into God's presence. You know, it makes sense. If you're, if you're going to go out on a hot date, you single folks, you're going to dress up. You want to look as clean, as pure, as nice as you possibly can. If you're going to go meet the president or the queen of England or some important person that you admire, you're going to dress up and look as nice as you can. You want to be pure where you're, when you're in the presence of someone important, of someone special, of someone that is high and lifted up. That's exactly the idea that these laws in the Old Testament were intended to communicate. Now, here's what you have to understand. Jesus would have fully agreed with the Pharisees that uncleanliness, that impurity is a problem for us, that we are too impure to enter the presence of a holy God. The issue in this passage and in many other parts of the New Testament, the issue of disagreement that Jesus brings out so forcefully here is the source, the source of our uncleanliness. You see, over time, the Old Testament leaders and the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees in our stories here in the New Testament, had 
perverted and twisted the teaching of the Old Testament so that by the time that Jesus was alive and by the time that Mark is writing this gospel, the leaders in Israel, the religious leaders, believe, for example, that going to the market without ritually washing your hands was what actually made you unclean. Let me think, put it another way for you. They did not believe that these laws of ritual purity were just symbols of a deeper problem of impurity. Rather, they believed that the actual symbols were the source of impurity themselves. They had confused, you see, the sign with the reality of what the sign was pointing to. So they had devised this elaborate system on top of the laws of the Old Testament, a ton of man-made rules that Jesus refers to here multiple times as traditions of men in order to protect them from becoming undefiled, from becoming impure. And we see that there in verse 4. There's that's so crazy and it's to such an extent that they wash cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches in this ritualistic ceremonial way because at the bottom bottom line, the, the end of the day, the Pharisees are convinced, and you got to listen to this if you want to get the story. The Pharisees are convinced that contact with the bad stuff out there is what makes us impure. And so they think, they reason, if we can avoid contact with the bad stuff out there, we can avoid impurity. And this is why they're so angry at Jesus and his disciples. And this also is why Jesus says in verse 15 and 16, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. You see, in other words, the thing that makes us unclean is not something external to us. It's not something out there. It's not people or food or environments. It's, according to Jesus, our own hearts. And you have to understand this. If you want to understand the message of Jesus, it's that important. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, external solutions don't deal with the soul. They don't deal with the heart. You see, outside-in cleansing will never work. We will never shake our problem, our uncleanliness in this way. The great novelist, Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote this, the line between good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Now, this might seem like a foreign idea for you. I recognize that. But again, I want to communicate that it's, it's essential for you to understand that you and I that we still try to address our problem of impurity, our problem of uncleanliness from the outside in through external measures. This is one of the great insights of the great reformer Martin Luther. Martin Luther taught, among other things, that the default mode, the default operating system of all of our hearts is to try to fix ourselves by changing something external, by changing something circumstantial, and not to actually deal with our own hearts. Now, today, we don't do that by this fastidious observance of Old Testament purity laws, but we all do it. We all do it all the time. So the question then is, how do we attempt to deal with our own problems of impurity and uncleanliness from the outside in? 
Now, there's a million ways. I'm sure you can think of many more than I'm going to give. I'm just going to give you a couple here real quick. Perhaps the primary way in a place like San Antonio, Texas, in the year 2015 is through religion itself. Perhaps the main way we try to cleanse ourselves from the outside in is exactly the way the Pharisees themselves did it. Here's how we think. We think if we stay away from dirty movies and profane activities and bad people, and if we go to church, and if we read our Bibles, and if we try our best to be good, then God will see that we're worthy, and he will come, and he will heal our hearts. That's what leads to the bunker mentality that many Christians have. It has its origin in the Pharisees, in the idea that if we can avoid the big, bad world, we can maintain purity. And let me be honest, many of you here this morning are doing just that. I'll be that direct with you. Many of you are here this morning because of your outward religiosity and your observance of rules and you want to do the best you can to get rid of this sense of uncleanliness and impurity that you feel in your life. But I want you to know, if you don't already know, that it doesn't work. Religion itself, mere religion, never actually cleanses the heart because it's outside in. You know, how do you know it never works? Well, one way you know is because you can never be sure that you've been good enough or zealous enough, or worked hard enough to be pure. And so you find yourself plagued with guilt when you feel like you're failing in your religious duties, or with pride when you feel like you're succeeding in doing well. And then when something goes wrong in your life, your first response is to look at God and say, God, why in the world are you doing this to me? I've tried so hard to be good. I've tried so hard to follow the rules. I've tried so hard to observe all the religious statutes that you've laid out for me. And now I'm going through this suffering. Now I'm going through this difficulty. What is up, God? Those sorts of reactions to God are proof that mere abstinence from certain activities can never make you holy. It doesn't get rid of the self-absorption and the self-centeredness of your hearts. It's outside in. That's why Jesus quotes Isaiah in the story and says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, he says. So one way we try to clean ourselves up outside in is through religious performance. Another way is through family. What do I mean by that? Listen, a lot of us are from really messed up backgrounds. Our families of origin are like a nuclear explosion in relationships, right? It's not pretty. It's really, really ugly. We have family of origin issues. And once we grow up and start having kids ourselves, we look back on the way we were raised and we think, I've got to do it differently. I've got to do it better. Um, I've got to not force my kids to do this or that. I've got to do schooling differently. I've got to discipline them differently. I've got to protect them from this or that. We're going to have unity in our marriage. We're going to be more tolerant. I'm going to implement these discipline practices from this book. Or I'm going to parent according to this technique. And it's all going to work out better than it did for me. Now, there's a million things you could add to that. But you see what's happening there. The bottom line is that we are buying oftentimes into the idea, into the false idea that the source of our problems comes from our own family of origin issues, comes from the way we were misparented or mistreated when we were kids, and that we can fix it if we work hard enough to make our current relationships different. 
And it actually leads to a lot of messiness in our own emotional lives too because we realize eventually that it doesn't work either. How do you know? Well, because the longer you work in all these relationships to make them all perfect, the more you realize that you can't. You can't make it all perfect. So either you run out of gas and give up in despair or you kill yourself to try to perform as an A-plus parent and you make it miserable for anyone else to be around you. You see, trying to be the best family in the world doesn't change you. It doesn't get rid of the pride and the shame and the fear in our hearts. It's outside in. Politics, it's another way we work outside in. Politics almost always works outside in. And it's true on the right and on the left. We have a tendency to believe that the source of our problems is in bad policy or bad ideas uh, or a bad governmental official on a governmental or cultural level. So if you're on the left, when Bush is in the White House, you say, if we can only get Bush out of the White House, everything will improve. If you're on the right, when Obama's in the White House, if we can only get Obama out of the White House, everything will get better. We have these messianic tendencies in our political views because we all want to believe that change can happen outside in. Now, it's not to say that policy and people aren't important, but it's not the source of our uncleanliness. It's not the source of our problems. It's not the source of our issues. It doesn't work, you see, to try and change from the outside in via politics. If the 20th century taught us anything, by the way, it was that. Now, maybe it isn't any of those things for you. But you need to understand that in some way, all of us are trying to purify ourselves. We're trying to shake our problems from the outside in. We all have a tendency to believe that what is wrong with us is something out there. So that if we can fix it by external change or performance, if we can try harder, if we can pray more, if we can vote for the right candidate, we can be better parents, whatever, then everything will end up being okay. Then we will feel clean and pure. But none of those things address the center of where our problems are. None of those things address the problem of our unclean heart. You see, that is what defiles us. It's not something way out there that makes you a mess. It is something deep in here. Which is Jesus' main point in this story. The source of our uncleanliness is not on the outside, but on the inside of us. And so he uses this encounter with the Pharisees as an opportunity to teach his disciples this lesson. And so we see, secondly, inside-out cleansing. In verse 14, Jesus calls the people to himself... And he gives this famous parable that we've already read. Nothing outside a person by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. And then he explains it again to his disciples in verse 18. Don't you get it, he says? Don't you see that whatever goes into a person from the outside, that's not what defiles you. It's not through eating unclean food that you're actually defiled. That was just a sign to show where your real problem is. It's not that avoiding eating food is going to change your heart, Jesus says. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. What comes within, out of the heart of man. And then he lists this long list of 12 things and then summarizes it by saying all these evil things, all of them, they come from within, from inside of your heart. That is what defiles you. That's what your problem is. Think about it this way. It's not that the Pharisees were too stringent or too strict or too severe in the desires to purify themselves. 
That wasn't their problem. Their problem is that they weren't nearly stringent enough in their analysis of what the true problem was. They thought that through some external measure or external change, they could repair themselves. They didn't take their problem nearly seriously enough. They thought that they could surgically remove it. Just like you and me, all the time, think that we can surgically remove our heart uncleanliness, our heart impurity, our inner defilement. We all naturally think that way. We're happy to admit that we have problems, but we think it's repairable if we just find the solution. And what Jesus is showing us here is that the problem that we all face, the problem of our uncleanliness and impurity is far too severe and much too deep for any outside-in fix. So what can we do? Well, there's two things we can do. And I want to tell you those two things and then we'll finish. First, you must see the severity of your problem. You must see the severity of your problem. If you, if you are really going to understand what Christianity is about, what this book is about, what Jesus of Nazareth taught, if you really want to get that, whether you profess faith in Jesus at this point or not, if you really want to understand it, you must get that the human diagnosis of our hearts from God is much more serious and severe than we want to believe. Jesus tells us in so many ways that the world is the way it is, not ultimately because of bad politics or bad parents or irreligious people. The reason the world is the way it is is because of the sickening selfishness of all of our hearts. You might think that that's put way too strongly. So let me ask you to imagine this with me. Imagine that your entire life Every thought, every word, every action were displayed on this movie screen behind me. And imagine that that movie screen were moved like to downtown San Antonio, right in, in front of the Alamo, where there's thousands of tourists every day. So that every thought you've ever had, every word you've ever spoken quietly is revealed to anyone who will just look up. How would you feel? Now, I'm sure there would be much for you to be proud of. Some great accomplishments you had at work. Real, true, selfless acts as a parent. Really being generous with your money. Really trying to help someone. But if you're anything like me, there's millions of things that you would never want anyone to see. There are so many things that you have thought. There are so many things that you have said that if the whole world knew about it, you wouldn't be able to look anyone in the eye. You would be so ashamed you wouldn't be able to leave your house. The depth of the problem of your hearts is just like that. Jesus is putting an x-ray machine on your spiritual life in this story and asking you to see what is really there. He's asking you to look at yourself, to look within and to say, this is my biggest problem. This is the source, the root, the cause of all of my impurity, of all of my issues. This is what I am really like. The things that Jesus mentions there in verse 21 and 22, that's, that's me. 
Now, that's not usually how people talk about wrongdoing. When people confess something wrong, they'll say, well, it was an accident. I found myself in this really bad situation. It wasn't intentional, but I'm sorry. That's not going to cut it with Jesus. If you want to follow him, that's not enough. That's another way of doing it outside in. Jesus asks you to look at your true self and to see what's really there. And what's really there is all manner of evil things. They come from within and they defile you. Sin is not something that you come across out there and unintentionally get caught up in. Sin is something that you discover in here. So you have to be willing to look inside and take responsibility for what you see. You have to be able to say, this is me. I am really like that. I do these things. I think these things. I am that selfish. I am that proud. I am that murderous and hateful. I am that greedy. I am that foolish. I am that slanderous. I am that immoral. This is me. The problem is not the uncommitted people. The problem is not the irreligious people or the religious people. The problem is not the liberals or the conservatives. The problem is not the school system. The problem is not Hollywood. The problem is not capitalism or socialism. The problem is not Obama or Bush or Clinton or whatever. The problem is here. The problem is me. That's the first thing you must recognize. It's what Jesus demands of us, actually. But secondly, when you see the severity of your problem, and only when you see the severity of your problem can you begin to understand and appreciate Jesus. And here's why. The main reason Jesus came is to heal you from the inside out of your heart problem. You see, Jesus has seen the movie of your life. You know that? He's God. He does know every thought you've ever had. He really does. He does know every word you've ever spoken in secret. He does know all of your impure motives. He does know all the wicked things you've committed. He knows every single thing you've ever thought, spoken, or done, and he still offers himself as a sacrifice of atonement for your impurity on the cross. He doesn't run away from you in disgust like everyone else would if they saw your inner life projected on a movie screen. No, Jesus runs to you. He runs to you and says, I will take all the punishment that that, that what I am seeing deserves. He does it freely. That's why the Bible speaks of his work for us on the cross as an atonement. It's Jesus taking all of our impurity, all of our uncleanliness, all of our mess, all of our sickness, all of our filth, all of the terrible things we think and do and say. He's taking all of those and the guilt and the punishment and the weight of all of those on himself in the cross and bearing the penalty that those things deserve freely. And then he also does something else for us. When you see how severe your problem is and what Jesus did to remove your uncleanliness, you can begin to love him. And then when you see that not only did he remove your uncleanliness, but he gives you a new heart. He gives you a new heart. He gives you the purity that you try to find in all these outside-in fixes that never work. He gives them to you freely by his grace inside out. It's what the prophet Jeremiah hundreds of years ago prophesied that Jesus would do. God says in Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within them. 
I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. So Jesus takes all of your impurity and then he gives you his perfectly pure heart for a completely new start on life. And he does it all for free by his grace. All you have to do is see your real condition and ask him for help. That's what the Bible calls repentance and faith. Acknowledge, Jesus is asking you to acknowledge that you are too impure for any outside in solution and that he has freely offered himself to make you clean, to give you a new heart, to take care of all of your problems and change you from the inside out. The Pharisees never understood that. Religious people don't understand that. But that's the gospel. If you want to experience change, that's what you must grasp. As I've mentioned recently, I've just been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids, and I took another level. I'm not going to preach from the Chronicles of Narnia, but I'm close. Uh, I've been reading through this with my kids, and um, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a a remarkable story I'm going to tell real quick, and then we're done, okay? Eustace is one of the boys that goes into Narnia in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and really, to be honest, he's just a slimy, scumbag kid. I mean, he's not just a brat. This kid is functionally worthless. No one likes him. He is <clears throat> wicked. He, he doesn't have that, you know, that button that a lot of us have in our heads that makes us socially you know, respectable. He's not any of those things. He is pathetic. He's, he's the person that no one wants to be around. And he finds himself in Narnia, and he's complaining, complaining, complaining. And they're on this ship called the Dawn Treader, and they land on this island. <clears throat> and Eustace goes off by himself, And he sees a cave off in the distance. And as he walks to the cave, he realizes that it's the cave of a dragon. And as he approaches, he begins to get really tired. And he lays down to take a rest foolishly in front of this cave. And then when he wakes up, the first thing he sees is a dragon's claw. He initially is very frightened. And then he looks to his right and he sees a dragon's tail going out behind him. And he thinks, what is wrong with me? Am I surrounded by this dragon? Has this dragon embraced me? But then he begins to look at himself and he realizes that he has become a dragon himself. And Lewis says that Eustace sat there thinking terrible dragonish thoughts in his wicked dragonish heart and realizing what a mess he had made of his life longing to be healed, longing to become a boy again instead of a dragon. And as a few days later he walks along this island, he comes across a pond, and there by the pond stands a lion. The lion, of course, is Aslan, who is the Christ figure and one of the great characters in children's literature, for that matter, adult literature. And Aslan looks at him and says, you need to take those scales off. And so Eustace says, I'm willing to do anything. And he begins to to rip the scales off. And he, he realizes that he can slip out of his dragon skin like a snake, you know, can shed its skin. And so he sheds his skin as a dragon and looks at the lion and then looks down at himself and realizes that there's just another dragon skin underneath. He hasn't done enough. And so he does it a second time. And then he does it a third time. And after three times of shedding his skin, he finds that he's still just as dragonish as he ever was. And so Aslan looks at him and says, you will have to let me undress you. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep 
that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. Only Jesus can remove the wicked, dragonish scales from your heart. Will you let him do it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and love. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see the severity of our own uncleanliness, of our own impurity, of our own heart problems. Jesus, often we fail to see these things because we think that we really aren't that bad that really the problem isn't that severe, that really we can, we can fix it on our own if we just do the right things or do the right rituals or say the right prayer. But Jesus, there's no way we can fix ourselves. Only you can fix us. So come to now, to this morning and we ask and, and do that repairing, healing, purifying work in our hearts. Lord, we ask these things not because we've done anything to deserve your work for us through Jesus, but because we believe that you're gracious. So come and be gracious to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.